This is a Podfire production. This podcast may have explicit themes and swearing and may not be suitable for children. The world is full of amazing people and once a week I get the opportunity to interview one of them. My name is Brett McCallum and this is Awesome Humans. Morning all, this is Brett McCallum. I'm the host of Awesome Humans, the podcast that brings together some of the most amazing people on this awesome planet of ours to tell us their stories, have a few laughs, sometimes some tears, but most of all, it's all about them, who they really are. Welcome to Awesome Humans. When I was 16 years old, I was in a TV commercial for Clearacel, and it was because I had no pimples, which was really interesting. But anyway, in the commercial with me was an amazing young actress named Toyra Bird. She was on the old Sikkim Rex ants pants campaign i looked at her and i had a good chat to her and she'd been doing this for a number of years and she started to make a living out of it so i decided i want to start working in tv working in tv was one of the favorite things i did as a kid and i wanted to make a career of it i tried out for the national institute of dramatic arts nida but i was told to come back when i was a bit older i auditioned for a few more commercials some extras on tv and in the end of my illustrious career in front of the camera i pretty much gave up about six months later I've gone on a host podcast, talk on stage in front of thousands of people and tell stories for a living. I've not done too bad in this space and last year I was the executive producer of now an award-winning short film, Lessons. This got the taste for film back for me and now we're looking at producing a docuseries based on the Taranaki Airs basketball team in 2024. During all of this, we meet people the way I like to introduce today's guest, originally introduced to me, through a friend, uh, in regards to the docu-series, I just decided to do a little bit of homework. So here we go, I'm going to try and do this in one <laughs> breath. He's now an associate professor at Nanyang Technology University, has a PhD in philosophy, has an actor in little hits like Underbelly. He was a director of legendary Australian TV shows such as Neighbours, Blue Hill, as he was one of, he won Best Director Award for the San Fran Film Festival for Wee Jimmy. Couldn't do it in one breath. He was the lead in the Grease the Musical and most importantly, biggest claim to fame and the most amazing thing to me, it was on Heartbreak High. <laughs> so uh, I'd like to welcome Ian Dixon or is it Associate Professor Ian Dixon or is it Dr. Ian Dixon? It's Dicko. It's Dicko. Love it. Okay. Welcome, mate. How are you? I'm, I'm, I'm good. Like I'm saying, three hours sleep. Three I'm, hours sleep you get there, though. I'm primed for this. <laughs> <laughs> mate, I ask everyone this same question when we first started. You remember there's no rules. You can swear. You can do whatever you like. That's all good. Bullshit. Um, what's your first ever memory? How first far back can ever, you go? Oh yes, I do remember this. It was um, uh, the my bassinet in the backyard of our place. We lived in this what used to be a dive and now is a middle class suburb in uh, Adelaide yep. called Prospect and uh, fifty seven Charles Street Prospect, and we <laughs> uh, and my first four years of life were there. But I remember it being in the bassinet that my parents had taken in the backyard and my dad was taking photos of his, you know, he's proud of his uh, new son and boy, he learned to be disappointed real <laughs> fast, right? But on that day, he picked a rose and he put it, I don't know how old I was, but he picked a rose and he put it on my chest and I'm in my little baby blue outfit and I'm looking up at the trees. Now, I've seen... And you remember it? Or I is the photo you've seen to make the memory happen? Now, interesting point, because, yep. you know, there are theories to say you will never remember anything before the age of three. And yep. yet, the great film director, Ingmar Bergman, has memories from a very early age. And I recall the sitting in the tree, because I don't... I, re, I have seen the photograph. Yeah, yeah. There was a photograph taken. I've seen it. It was a beautiful photograph, mate. And it was like, it was the most... I look good as a baby. Yeah, yeah. It was, <laughs> I haven't looked that good since. Yeah. And, and um, my dad was a very kind of bloke. He, he didn't want to, 
you know, have any pansy for a son, but he put a flower on a baby boy to take the photo. I thought I thought that was a really interesting choice. You know, Very he was an engineer, so. yeah, yeah, but he was um, he was a frustrated artist. I think he was actually a really good drawer, and that helped his engineering. Uh, but different minds, different minds. Anyway, so I remember being in that space, looking up at those trees and seeing the light play through the willow trees. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that will happen here is because I've asked you that question now, as we go through this process, there's all these other things that will just pop back in your brain. Yeah, right. That's the reason we start that way. Right, okay. That's cool. How I roll. Right back to base. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Isn't that funny? So we're in a pub. We're sitting down. We're having a chat. What's the best ever Dicko story? What's the one you go to with all your old mates? (laughs) <laughs> the one you uh, yeah, you can actually tell um, out to the public, but what's, you said, what's your go-to story? You can do whatever you like here. Uh-huh, there are uh-huh, no rules. Uh-huh. Uh, you, you don't want to hear about anything sexual, so I'll I'll, I'll just stop right there. <laughs> stop there, <laughs> right, yeah, right, go okay, feel yeah. um, Probably, um, probably. Uh, I was talking about this with with Tommy recently. I, I'm a risk taker. Okay. I'm a risk taker by nature, and apparently by my bodily set up from what I understand from my good friend Tommy Glenn and I used to do really stupid things like really stupid things so I was on a, a train we were going to a party if for some reason we this was around about I would have been 17 so it would have been in the uh, very early 80s yep. and I was on this train and we were all wearing pyjamas. We'd been to several <laughs> pubs, we'd been on a pub crawl so we were already pissed yeah. and we got on this train to go up into the Adelaide Hills to a party, Lord knows where we were going but uh, because I was pissed and because in those days, you know these days the doors shut, they remain shut. You could open right? them back You then. could open yeah. them and you could hang out the side of the train. So here's me in my, at my attention seeking best. <laughs> I just wanted to, I just thought, nobody's paying me enough attention. I know, I'll stick my head out the side and then I, you know, remember the old bars on the side you could yeah, actually, yeah. Yeah, the hand up, couldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. So I literally climbed up the side of the train with my boot and hung out the side of the train going it was a hoot i thought right and i'm i'm quite drunk by this stage and they're going like yeah giving the train train." (laughs) come on mate that's enough exactly that's enough that's enough but i'm thinking got their attention awesome uh an actor in the making at this stage and uh so fucking vague mate and I, i remember like looking along the track and seeing Oh, uh, that's a fucking tunnel, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and the tunnel is coming t- towards me like this, and I'm thinking, well, what do you do when there's a fucking tunnel coming towards you? And uh, and they were just like inside, and I saw their faces, and I thought, all right, they're going, Ian, get back inside, get back inside. So I took, I took that drawer, I climbed down, walked in, and I saw their faces suddenly go white. And what they had seen, they explained to me mate, later, was... Uh, the instant I stepped in, phew, the the tunnel went past. We went into that tunnel. So had I not stepped in that You'd at that dead. moment, I would have been decapitated. Um, now you know I'm a married man, and there's plenty of reasons why she wished I had been decapitated <laughs> at the time. But then it was. Did you sober up instantly? Uh, <laughs> mm, let me see. No, but they did. Yeah, I'm sure they did. <laughs> right. I was just going like, hey, get your attention, right? <laughs> and then I went to see my, my best mate, just someone that Tommy and I went to school with, Stephen Mitchell. And, um, and he was like, he was like, he, he could not look. I, 
you know, like, I don't want to see my best friend decapitated. But the weird thing was that his girlfriend was a highly intuitive young woman and she used to have prophetic dreams. And she was... I went inside and all his mates were looking at me, but she was crying. She was weeping with tears. And she said, I dreamt that no. you died on a railway track two nights ago. Wow. Now, you can make of that what you will. Wow. As a professor, I would go straight to, <laughs> all right, Freudian psychoanalysis <laughs> says it is a quite incredible um, coincidence, yeah. and therefore it gives us uncanny feelings, and we think, "Oh, mate, it was like <laughs> someone was speaking to us from you know beyond." Wow. We we don't know, but what an amazing coincidence that was! And because we were young, of course, then we went to the party and got more pissed. <laughs> Came Jesus, that. there we go. Not a bad way to start <laughs> proceedings. Okay, let's go back to the start. Where were you born? Adelaide Memorial Hospital, nineteen sixty-six. Where was your first school? St. Andrew's Primary. St. Andrew's Primary. Great were you a school. good kid, bad kid, nerd, jock? Where were you? I was neurodiverse. Well before we knew what that meant. I was someone who, uh, and to this day, I carry a uh, disability, uh-huh. and that disability is dyslexia. Okay. In some countries in the world, that is not recognised as, di- as a disability, but in most it is. Now, the thing is, in the 1970s, when I went to, to primary school, no one knew about it. No you one had a researched. Kid, I was a distracted <laughs> kid, right? And they used to call me a distracting influence and easily distracted. Um, what they didn't know was so much about dyslexia is that the dyslexic child experiences movement as stillness and stillness as movement. So if you go to a dyslexic child, stop moving... They start moving because they think this is this is stillness. The opposite. Right? This yeah. is stillness, and so I was always in trouble. And they said, like, they they was they started this, and secondary school took that on more. Look, you're obviously smart. You you know why do you behave like you're an idiot? Why do you behave like you're stupid? And and why won't you apply yourself to 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 school? And the answer was, well, I didn't know I was dyslexic. I didn't know that. When did they work that out? I actually got right through school, um, uh, through high school. I went to university and I went, something's wrong, something's wrong. And the Adelaide University back in the 80s had this great system. By then, research was starting to step in. I went in, did the psychology test, the Ways-R test that gives the imbalances in in the mind. And when the test came back, um, I went to see the the counsellor on on campus and he said, "Um, results have come back. You are severely dyslexic. And my first question to you is, how the hell did you make it through school? Wow. Right. And I said, and actually, I literally just burst into tears. Like suddenly I was validated. I, I knew, told yeah. them. I'd been told well, them for well, years. I told yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, you know. But I had a, a very conservative Christian family and my father in particular was not going to accept that there was anything genetically wrong with his son. Right, I put that rose on you for a reason, <laughs> exactly, kid. Right, yeah. and he bred me to be a lawyer, and I, I, I had cheated him because I'd enrolled in the arts. Right, I got into law like he bred me to be, and 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 I did the arts, um, and then we discover I'm dyslexic. So unbelievable. So during high school, then when you're this disruptive kid, what mm. did you want to be? Did you have obviously Dad wanted you to be a lawyer? I, I, I would go back before I knew. 
my vocation, you mm. know, in, in a spiritual sense, I would call it Dharma. I, yeah. I don't know what you think of that, uh, yeah. you know, Dharma's, whatever. Dharma's good. Good. Um, so I knew that I was going to be a film director and I knew that at eight years old. Why? And I said, to, well, because I, was, I started writing scripts. Like, okay. you, you know, these days kids can get their hands on cameras, they can start making films, they can do scripts, they can even stick it into AI yeah. and they'll write the script for them, right? But I, I just loved the gothic. Even before I became a horror fan, I was a gothic fan. And so I used to watch Hammer horror films at a very early age. It's kind of like why I'm a bit messed up, you know? <laughs> and um, I loved the uh, horror form so much that I wrote a vampire film. And I, 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 at age eight. At age eight, yep. Oh, yeah. I, had it, I had it written, I had it cast, I had cast my family as the various different roles. You know, <laughs> all, so that happy. Yeah. <laughs> Dad, you're a vampire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mom, and you're a witch. You, yeah, and how do you truly feel about it, son? <laughs> Actually, how'd you know that? There you go. Mom was a witch. There you go. I you know, just, because I, know I think. Now, like, uh, you know boats, I know psychoanalysis, <laughs> right? So in, with the benefit of, of reading everything Freud ever read and uh, also eventually discrediting, and no, like, you know, the man was a cocaine freak. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, looking at what I did, I could tell I was trying to negotiate my place in the family. Um, I was trying to understand the shadow of my family. My mother, as, as Tommy will verify, was the most beautiful, sweet delicate woman you can ever imagine in public and behind closed doors or two different human beings depends on how many doors you close okay <laughs> because yeah, like true. like you know mum sweet as hell until that day when she goes get to your own room right and it's like whoa mum mum i don't understand that so in in trying to understand why my mum was the sweetest person in the universe and also I thought of her, I, I remember as a kid, uh, as part of my neurodiversity, thinking that I was being chased around by witches. Um, and I used to come out of the dark and rub my, my back against the fridge to rub the witches off. Now, thinking about that from the future, from the point of view of psychoanalysis, that was the shadow of my mother taking sexual control of a son. That was my fear, mm. right? That's what Freud's all about. Anyone who's read Freud would know, um, which is probably why he's discredited, right? Yeah, yeah for sure. But... An interesting thing. And when Dad Dad was cast as Frankenstein, and Frankenstein, as anyone knows about film history, is a masculine figure. You know, it's lumbering, it moves slowly, flat head, bolts in the neck, um, square, like the Japanese say in design, square design. Whereas the vampire is feminine, a wafty, blowing thing. Even Bella Lugosi, who played the original Dracula, mm -hmm. was a, um, a, a very effeminate man and of course he was european so yeah. he, had, he didn't have that kind of american machismo so he was perfect for the part you think about that i was trying to understand genderization i was trying to understand all sorts of different things to get back to the story my uncle was an avid amateur filmmaker and he had super 8 camera and he had all the you know, slides and the photographs. He was brilliant at it, right? He's such a sweet man. He only he died in 2000, yeah? Dad's brother or mum's brother? Dad's brother. Okay. Right? Dad's brother. So dad was the big masculine engineer and his, his brother was the filmmaker. Uh, dad was a masculine engineer and his brother was a butcher. Oh, there you but go. he was a hobbyist as okay. a filmmaker, right? Interesting. So I said to dad, I've got this plan. Here's the script. I've got um, costumes. I know I'm going to put my sister in a dressing gown. I don't know why. That made her look like a vampire. <laughs> I don't get it. Um, but Dad said, 
And so I said, I, I want to borrow Uncle Alan's Super 8 camera. And Dad said, no, you're not going to do that. And I'll tell you why. Because filmmaking will ruin your life. Right. Now, Tommy knows, <laughs> but me enough to know that if you say, the best way to get me to do something say is say, you can't do it. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it's going to ruin your life. Okay, cool. I'll do it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I got told you'll never get a PhD, so I got a damn PhD, whatever. You know, if you want me to do something today, just tell me I can't do yeah, it. Yeah, fair cool. It's, it's a red rag to a bull. So when he said that, I didn't get that camera in my hands. But I started thinking about film and I started formulating films. In those days, it took until I was 17 to get, uh, and I enrolled in cinema studies at Flinders University. Professor Noel Purden, amazing, amazing man. You know, total soaker, but boy was he a good teacher and he was probably the most knowledgeable man I've ever met. And he was one of the first guys that said, Don't, we're not doing exams, we're not going to have you write essays, if you want to replace that essay by making a film, you'll be doing a lot more work. So what do you want to do? I want to make films. So I started making films and I just, you know, after a really struggling through school in my literature degree at Adelaide Uni and in my uh, degree in um, cinema studies, I, f I flew. I was like straight A. Suddenly it, I was in the right area. Because you found your niche. I found my niche. It's really interesting. Do you remember the show E Street? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Mr. Bad. That was on right, that. Yeah, he was yeah. the, the murderer that yeah. no one ever knew, and it was really bizarre. He was actually the husband of one of my teachers at school. Oh. And when I first did TV commercials and things, I really wanted to get into this. And I'm sitting there going, this is me, this is my life. He, she introduced me to him, and so he was actually giving me some coaching, some acting coaching and stuff like that. And I still remember, I don't remember his name, but I still remember to this day that he said to me, he goes, do you look at life as if everything you do is a different scene? Do you look at life through a lens? And I said... No one's ever said that to me. No one's ever actually – I've never thought of it that way. But, yeah, that's exactly how right. I look at things. And if I'm in like a studio like this, I, the way my brain works is the fact that I know Tommy's over there, I know you're there. Mm, actually, mm. the best camera shot because it's about you is on you. But it's just little things that go off in my head. Mm. And it has mm. always. And mm. I've never done anything with that until now. But the big thing for me was he always said, you just wait. He said, wait, your time will come. This will happen. Okay. And his big thing was don't push it, don't push it. But he said as soon as you realise how you learn, you'll thrive. Absolutely. I learned how to learn. Listen. Yeah. I don't actually – I'm not a good reader right. and that. That's an right. audio books and all yep. that sort of stuff. So I've learned pretty much everything I do through listening to it. And as soon as I, I learned that, I was a completely different human being. So, you know, like, as a, as a university lecturer, we get this theory that, like – You've got 30 people in the class, yep. but Brett up the front here is an auditory learner. Yep. So I know how to communicate to you. I, I'm not going to look in your eyes. I am going to avert my eyes so that you don't have to worry so about you're how you're being it. judged. And I yeah. am going to talk because I know you're listening. Funny, the person that? up the back that's a visual person is like, they're not going to get that. So I'm going to dance around, do an idiot and do all the things that... For some damn stupid reason, they gave me a job as a professor. And is that some way, do you, do you learn that <coughs> per class? Like, do you get that? Cause oh, that for me is an intuitive process. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And what's more, the, um, the psychologist that invented that theory has since been discredited. Did really? you know that? Yeah. No. Like, we go, there's auditory learners and there's, you know, um, co-anesthetic learners that learn through all of their senses. Um, and it's been, uh, it's been disproven. Now, you can tell me it's been disproven all you like. But I know there are different ways in which students learn. Without doubt. Yeah. But any degree of academic analysis of what that is is pretty much useless to a, a lecturer on their feet. 
what's important is having the intuitive ability to understand someone. And uh, you're listening to me now, but you're also thinking about the next question, I'm. right? Yeah. yeah. And and uh, I think the best lecturers in the world are the ones that are utterly aware of what their audience is doing. Because the cliche of a professor is um, someone that goes, like that, that, you remember the character on Sesame Street? Yeah. yeah. The, the professor? <laughs> and, and he would... Before, he would just be asleep on the desk and then he would wake up and go, <coughs> my lecture for today. <coughs> and, uh, and I thought, wow, I want to be one of those. I want to be a lecturer. <laughs> um, and if you're a lecturer like that, you won't be in a job anymore. Of course. Because the students are now voting for us. We mark them, they mark us. So you have to communicate with them. And honestly, it's not about that. I think if you're in a university environment and you don't love knowledge, why are you there? I like yourself, you know, you do your research. You uh, are a man who's inherently interested in life. Mm. You tell stories, you meet interesting people, um, like uh, the people we're going to meet this afternoon, and you are reading people. You're reading me right now. 100%. And yet there is a tendency in the neurodiversity of professors to not have the ability to do that. There's a high uh, ratio of Asperger's and autism in university professors. That means they're being asked to read um, people and yet they don't want to look them in the eyes because Asperger's train themselves to look between the yeah. eyes rather than into the eyes because it's too confronting. Uh, and if they're not tuning in to what the audience are feeling, thinking, and how they're learning, why are they a lecturer? That is an old form of lecture. We do this thing these days called the flipped classroom, which is quite simply, we don't teach them they tell us what they want to be taught. And they do the research. And then and I facilitate that. It makes me feel like I'm being paid for uh, no particularly good reason. <laughs> <laughs> but you are because you're educating. The problem with school is school. Well, where do we start? I know, but the big thing is it's, we're in the 1920s. We're sitting in rows. We've got a lecturer at the front mm. telling them how to build bombs for the war. Yeah. That's yeah. what we are. That's what school is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I failed high school. Um, I, I good finished, for you. I finished year twelve. My report card. It's, it's very amusing. I shouldn't have showed my kids this right. because they sort of say, "But you did that." <laughs> um, and it actually says on there, if he had have actually tried, then he would have went well. Right. The biggest difference is that no one knew how to deal with me. I, mm. I was full A's in um, sport and all the things I enjoyed. Yeah. But the big thing for me is it's all about. Uh, whether it's ADHD, ADD, whatever you want to call it, doesn't really matter. Shiny object syndrome, I call it. Mm -hmm. right. but, the, <laughs> but instead of worrying about it, I embrace it. Yeah. So everyone says you need to concentrate on one thing. My brain doesn't work that way. Mm. I've got 11 things on the go. I know exactly mm. where each of them are. Mm. I know exactly what's happening here and there. And that's just because that's my brain. Your brain's different. Tommy's brain's different. Chris's brain's different. His brain is particularly different. But the thing is, we're all different. <laughs> so how can you teach kids the exact same thing the same way? Whereas you, what you're saying is that the auditory learner and the visual learner, yeah. you can teach them differently. And that's what it's all about. Absolutely. But there's also, like, w let's go back to the 1920s and even before that, the uh, education was born in the Age of Enlightenment. Yes. Uh, and it was a, a system uh, that we think of as a good thing because people learned to read, they became literate, and then communication improved. But at the same time, what were they being trained for? They were being trained for the 20th century, which was all about factory work. Indeed. So you put the kids in the rows, like you say, Production. and it doesn't matter what you're teaching. It doesn't matter how many times you cane them over their hands. What you're really teaching them is to sit still and be passive and do what you're told mm -hmm. because then the bourgeois classes can totally exploit the crap out of you. 
and they'll do it. So and they this, did. And yeah, they still do. Yeah, and it still goes on <laughs> yeah. today. Now that that a lot of people are cynical about education, but I see it from the inside, and I see a lot of a lot of good research going into how kids learn. Yeah. You hear a lot of shock jocks go, "Yeah, but our kids can't do maths anymore," and that is like picking up on a, a, a particular issue. And look, I teach in Singapore, and Singaporeans know this. They have learned rote learning. It's like it's the nineteen fifties, yep. in, in or to the seventies in in Australia. Um, things have changed here, but there they're still getting rote learning. Then I get a bunch of university students in front of me. Smart, you bet they're smart. It's Singapore. They very much apply themselves. Yeah. They are, I think. The best thing about the country is the youth that they've got, um, you know, coming up. So I'm, I'm teaching these guys. I'm doing it intuitively. But I find that when I'm asking an Australian student to be lateral about something, they can get there a lot faster than yeah. a Singaporean. But when the Singaporean gets it, my God, they've, they're all over the Australians. It's like, you know, I would say, look out Australia because uh, – Singapore's coming. Yeah. Well, uh, they call it the Asian century. And there's something about the tragedy of rote learning that then flips over into you get to drive this. A couple of years and they get the confidence up to do that and that's when they do amazing stuff. That's interesting, isn't it? Because every kid learns differently. They were taught a certain way and obviously that's what they thought was right Mm -hmm. back then. But now you look at it and then you've got to ask the question, was it right? Yeah. Because it's not wrong. That rote learning is not wrong. It there has <laughs> it works, right? It's education. 100%. Yeah. But the question is, we are no longer in the Age of Enlightenment. We are no longer in the Fordist era, era, which was factory production. What do we want? And what we want, what we need for the future, particularly as AI comes in and technology changes so rapidly, is we need flexible minds that can think laterally and can problem solve and can have translation skills. You know, they can translate uh, um, transferable skills. They can go from one job to another. Mm -hmm. My dad, as an engineer, worked for ETSA, the Electricity Trust of South Australia, (laughs) for his whole life. He was a cadet. Um, They put him into uni because he was like a working class kid that, that learned. I totally respect my dad for that. He worked like a dog all his life. Yep. To get... Uh, you know, salt of the earth, good father, solid, dependable father. And um, I lost him last year, so I'm getting a bit sad about that. But... But he did what he did because he had to for you. Oh, absolutely. That's what what it was. But now what you're doing, you're doing what you do because you do for your kids. Exactly. And like you got kids... twisted. Yeah, you were talking about... We were talking about our kids the other day. Um, My daughter is... Preternaturally smart, and Love it. Uh, you know, and she is a good kid for this era, yeah, because she can, you know, like she can talk, boy, can she talk, and then she can just block everything out and read a book. <laughs> and she'll read, she's read Harry Potter, everything in it. She's 10 years old, read everything in Harry Potter, probably five times each, each, each volume. <laughs> she could recite yeah. the volumes. I used to read to, uh, storytellers, stories to her. You're a storyteller, right? Yeah. You, you must uh, tell stories and read stories to your kids, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Well, when yeah. I used to, yeah. Right. 
Well, as a dyslexic, she got a little <laughs> frustrated about the age of three, going, and she just goes, oh, "Just give me the book, will you?" <laughs> so, so ever since she's three, she reads me the stories at night. Love right? that. Yeah, that's good for her too. Absolutely. She's educating you. Yeah, it's good for me because I'm lazy. <laughs> so let's go there. Let's go, family. So, mum and dad, obviously, salt of the earth people. Yeah. Um, they to me, they sound like typical mums and dads of that era. Dad went out and worked really hard. Mum looked after the family. Mum mm. was the nicest person in the community. Gets home and then mum's mum. Mm. <laughs> Mine's exactly the same. Yeah, right. <laughs> and the same as, same as dad. We lost dad in, uh, 19 years ago now. Oh. And um, the thing is that still every day I still think about him, still think about the things he taught me. I still open the car door for my wife. Right. Everyone goes like, "What? What's that? It's just what I was taught." Good for, yeah, like but we got that at private school. Hundred like, percent. Yeah, it's like these things you're taught by your parents. So now you're married with kids. Mm. Where'd you meet your wife? How'd that happen? <laughs> Tell me that story. Um, uh, film school, University of Canberra. I was the lecturer of the unit, and she was one of the tutors that was teaching. I thought you were going to say student. Then. Yeah, I know you were. Like so many people do. And you know, when when I met her, she was thirty two, but she looked like she was about sixteen, right? Because she's Sri Lankan, and yeah. she's like she's still good. She's fifty, yeah. and she still looks like she's about thirty two. You know, it's like man, it pisses me off because it's that. like, um, uh, you know, if if it. Because of we have different coloured skin too, and I introduce her, it's yeah. like this is your, this is your, and they're thinking like, well, it can't be his daughter because <laughs> like they're different colours. So I'm like, how racist are you? Of course, it could be my daughter. <laughs> but yeah, we met in the. Um, God bless her. Um, she's only five foot tall. Yeah. But man, she she packs a punch. Like I'm sure she does. This woman is a PhD in film and feminism. Wow. Uh, pulls me back into line film all the time. Film and fem- feminism. feminism. Yeah, wow. exactly. Yeah. You want to get her. Interesting people. <laughs> amazing people. You want to get her. You don't bother talking to me, mate. Um, and uh, so we meet and my boss at the time uh, – Turned around, and he said, "Right, so you're going to be doing this course, and this is what I'm going right. I'll put in the research." And he goes, "Oh, and have you met Shisha?" So I turn around and I look. I don't see anybody, uh, and then I look down and say, like, "Oh, there she's down there." And I swear to God, mate, I shouldn't be saying this on air. You, you know, should, but <laughs> I was uh, engaged to be married at the time, <clears throat> and I looked down and I saw her face, and the words that came into my head was. I already have a wife. First day. Really? First day. For, um, you know, I used to say this was, if you believe in love at first sight. 100%. I certainly do. Love at first sight syndrome is what celebrity is about. It's about, um, uh, you know, the rom-com as we were talking and how, how brilliant and what a mm-hmm. saleable product they are. Um, love at first sight. It's, it should not be underestimated. I looked at her and I was instantly in love. Now, she told me she was instantly in love with me and then 10 years later she was saying, I was only telling you that to make you feel good. I thought you were a dickhead. <laughs> she said, I thought you were gay and I thought you were a dickhead. <laughs> I was like, hey, okay, right, <laughs> thanks, but you married thanks, me. <laughs> <laughs> I think she married me to sort of prove that she was wrong. And, um, and uh, so we started teaching together, and I swear to God, that was the most unruly bunch, about 100 kids in the class, unruly bunch of kids. as Australians. It was like they weren't very good at anything, so they put him in film courses. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Of course. And that's the worst person that should be in a film yeah. course. And amongst that, a bunch of 
really talented people that were sort of struggling to get the forward. And she would sit in the front row and listen to the lecture before she did the tutorial. I swear to God, uh, my anyone who knows my wife is she is beautiful. She is just golden brown, beautiful woman, five foot tall. Should have been a supermodel, but you know but she was about a foot and a half short. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, exactly. They yeah. said if uh, planes were made at half to s- at half scale, she'd have been the perfect air hostess, <laughs> <laughs> but um, not not tall enough. Yeah, um, she um, uh, we we then st- the, well, you know, I could tell more of that story, but just obviously, a bit X-rated. Obviously, you split up with the uh, fiance, and then you end up getting married to. Yeah, the I didn't have woman. much choice in that. It's just <laughs> uh, the. So I know this is wrong, and all your woke listeners are going to tune in. I don't out have completely. woke listeners. I don't believe hey, in woke. Hey, fantastic! So let's not go there. So, um, so uh, my fiance at the time was German. And it came with all the trimmings of the German of the German nation, yeah. right? One of the reasons, you know, the Teutonic tradition was all in her, and she was a kind of sis. Like you could talk, I would talk to her very seriously about the Holocaust and what Germany's responsibility toward uh, the death of six million Jews was. And she would go, "That's not my problem." <laughs> I go, "Like, well, you know, like the <laughs> Aboriginal people in the country. I didn't personally oppress them, yeah. but I sure as hell have advantage as a white man." Mm-hmm. I will never go back on that. Um, that is that is a principle I cling to. Um, and so, what were we talking about? <laughs> Your German ex. That's oh, that's right. The German ex. You see, it's you know from Freudian level. It was so it. disturbing <laughs> that I've repressed it's it. Like, ah. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. did you get down on one knee <clears throat> to your wife? Did you actually get down on one knee and offer her a nice... Now, at this point, you should wheel her in and say, here's one I prepared earlier. <laughs> because she she loves telling the story of our first date. Yeah. Because right? our first date was to the Melbourne Film Festival. And I tell you, there's a way to get things right with a woman. And then there's what I did. Oh, dear. <laughs> Which is like, I messed up everything. The like, whole lot? Even to... Yeah. She stayed with you, though. Yeah, she stayed with me. And, but I very cleverly <laughs> chose a horror film. I remember it was a great Australian horror film called The Lucky One. And... Um, I took it to a horror film because, you know, they get a bit scared and, oh, and they cuddle up to you, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, first kiss that night. Nice. Beautiful, beautiful girl she was um, and still is a, a divine human being. Yeah. So married now then, uh, how long have you been married? Ten years married, 14 years together. Actually, uh, if we tell that story, like she'll say we were, we've been together for 14 years and I'll say we've been together for 12 years. Now, what happened in those <laughs> missing two years? <laughs> I didn't. It was in a relationship. I didn't know. <laughs> oh, there you go. You know, it's the male female. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I get. That. I get that. I understand. And kids, <clears throat> one, one little girl. Uh, when you've got perfection first time, no need to do it again. That's not real good for me because I had four. <laughs> so my my daughter. Well, happy birthday to her yesterday. She turned twenty one yesterday. Um, oh. She we we thought she was perfection too. Right, yeah, <laughs> then yeah. she grew up. No, I'm only right, joking. Right, right, <laughs> right. So did the model get better through four? You know. Oh, mate! I tell you what. We always used to say that if we had had my fourth child first, he'd be an only child. <laughs> not because right. he's perfect. <laughs> just because right. he's so such a handful. Right. But that's okay. all part yeah, of the fun. Yeah. Mate, they're it's great. They're all different. They're all completely their own person. They're all opinionated, exactly like their mum. Mm. And, uh, yeah, that's <laughs> that's the reason why they're so amazing people. And when you talk about them, I, I you know, I see that little – I see the love. Oh, it's unbelievable, mate. Eyes. The love that you have for your kids is like nothing else. Like, I love my wife very dearly. Yeah. I tell her how lucky she is every day of her life. <laughs> 
and uh, she just rolls her eyes and we get on with life. Yeah, but right. when you got a kid, uh, my daughter left uh, three weeks ago. She moved out. Yeah. I was devastated. I was balling my eyes out. Sure. She moved 45 kilometres up the road. <laughs> 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 but it's not the point. She doesn't live with us anymore. And yeah, she's yeah, home yeah. every weekend and stuff. It's just, yeah, it's just weird that the first one's yeah. flown the nest. And when you get that feeling, we'll talk then. It's, yeah, your guts just go, Ugh. it's like, it's, it's tough. I remember when my daughter was one mm. and I just burst into tears one day and my wife was saying, what's wrong, what's wrong? <laughs> I was going, she's going to leave. She's going to leave home. <laughs> she's going like, well, not yet, honey. She's, she's one. She's one. <laughs> right, yeah. But you know that Beatles song? I don't know. Is, do we have copyright issues? If no, I no, no. You can right, sing. And, um, you know, she's leaving home. Bye, bye. Great song. And it is a great song, right? And it always made me cry. And I always thought, this is my soul <laughs> at the age of 16. When I'm 16, telling me one day I'm going to have a daughter and one day that daughter is going to leave. Yep. And I am going to weep. I am going to weep. Because I know that both my mum and dad wept when I left when home. And I left home pretty early. I left home at 17. So, yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? You think of things differently now you've got a kid. Oh, like you're not the everything. 17-year-old boy in his pyjamas hanging out the side of a train anymore. Yeah. Because, yeah. shit, I've now got to live for her as well. Yeah, and if I ever kept my daughter doing that, I'll, you know. <laughs> exactly. That's <laughs> funny, my other daughter, she's 19, she's starting to sort of come out with more stuff that she did at schoolies. And this. Right. And I just sit there and shake my head now. Right. I hadn't known that then, though. <laughs> you would have been grounded. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, but no, nah, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. But don't you worry about your kids, you know. I worry about this, my kids every single day. This hyper-technological society. Society in which yes and getting, no. You know, uh, so tell me, not um, what I was expecting. Why, why yes and no? Uh, because I'm, I'm a true believer in embracing technology. I'm a true believer in, and Gary Vaynerchuk, I don't know if you know Gary V at all. He no. um, is an American marketer. He's a, he's a. Um, oh yeah, right. Tommy Shepard. Yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a guru. He's my, he's my Jesus. As I said in a right. speech once, and everyone in the crowd didn't realize they were old. Um, Christians, <laughs> not a good idea to show a picture of not Jesus when you say that statement. <laughs> Different story. But the big thing that that is is my son plays Xbox and he oh. has thirty friends he plays with on Xbox. So me and you communicating like this, he's doing the exact same thing with headphones on and a microphone that is not sat in the same room. Yes. So from yeah. that side of things, mm -hmm. I embrace it. Mm -hmm. From the side of things of some of the technology that's out there scares the shit out of me. Mm -hmm. But what I try and do is understand it personally. Mm -hmm. So if I can understand the tech, I know how to, what they should do and shouldn't do. So therefore, you know, a little bit of right and wrong. Um, AI, embrace it 100%. I say to my daughters all the time, one's doing law at university, tissues AI to write that. Because we can't, we can't get it. I'll show you how to get around it. I know how to get around it. Mm. <laughs> but those, those sort of things. So to me, embracing technology and that sort of stuff is something that you need to do. Mm. So it's a necessity. Well, you know, uh, it's, it's back in the film department, the, the kinds of directors that embrace technology throughout history, yep. throughout the, you know, the, the Charlie Chaplin who did the first sound film and he, he invents... First of all, this brilliant slapstick that doesn't need sound, and then when the technology appeared, he was the first one to grab mm -hmm. it, and he knew how to strategically place it in there. And uh, that's modern times, and it's it's the first time a voice was heard. Actually, no, Al Jolson in the jazz singer was the first time it was used, but in comedy, it was um, used to much greater effect by Charlie Chaplin, who was a wonderful director. But imagine if that hadn't happened. 
I love sitting down with my mum and I say to mum, she has all oh, this technology, I can't do this. I said, mum, 15 years ago, you were still answering a phone on the end of a cord. Mm-hmm. You had no problems with that. Mm. Now you use your mobile phone and you've got no problems with that. Mm. The difference is that 15 years ago, I didn't know I could actually film a full movie on a mm. mobile phone. Dead right. Dead right. I got more power in my pocket now than most computers had three years ago. Yeah, that's what your wife tells me too. <laughs> yeah, of course she does. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, this, this, this concept that you, you bring up uh, is the is in opposition and we're in total agreement here which mm. i wasn't sure we were going there to be go. <laughs> but the, the concept of technological determinism if i can sound at the yeah, risk of sounding sure. like a professor mm. the concept that we have mobile phones because it was inevitable that we would have mobile phones mm-hmm. as if god laid out a plan for how technology would develop through the 20th century not so it is a supply and demand situation. Of course it is. Um, everyone wanted phones, so they put research into to creating phones. And when you you look at uh, the iPhone situation, or even further back to you know the cord phone, or you know the Germans had something equivalent, very close to an internet experience of um, video phone mm-hmm. in the 1930s. Yep. Now, it didn't take off then because there was a lesser demand for it. And then there was a war. And, of course... Everything went back 50 y- years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everything went back 50 years and we get the video phone. You know, just recently I was looking at Total Recall. Yeah. You know, Schwarzenegger trying to be sexy. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was a bit sad. But... Um, uh, still a terrific film. And they do this uh, rotoscoping. That yep. means that they, they place another image from another film that they've pre, pre-shot into the television so it looks like he's having a video conversation because that was their idea of the future. And then it happened. And we could say, you see, it was inevitable that it would happen. But it isn't. What about all those films that had technological ideas in sci-fi films that didn't eventuate? Exactly. What about those that do? And at what chance? But we can't say that. The only thing, coming back to the question of our, our children and technology, is I, I learned this lesson when I was teaching in a uh, games design school. Mm-hmm. And that was back in Australia before I moved to Singapore. And um, I could not understand why these young people were losing their communication skills because they were playing these games. And I said, why don't you just talk together? And then I went down into the games room because, you know, like it's a trendy school, they wanted to attract students. So yeah. you, they got to play games with their joysticks and, and um, you know, that thing that they do. And I saw these two guys sitting so close that they were touching, right? These are, um, you know, heterosexual geeky boys yeah. who, who just like, yeah, games, <laughs> make games. You know? It's like they haven't seen a woman in their life and they're frightened to touch one, right? <laughs> but I realised in that moment that they were sitting together watching a screen up there and even though we say they're a slave to technology or might, those guys were in kinesthetic communication together. They were saying, I love you, man, yeah. sitting right next to you. We, we don't have the power to talk, but we do have this thing. So... Technology has mediated communication. That hasn't happened before. Of course it had. So I learned a huge lesson about why people are gaming. And then, you know, it gets to devastating areas. Stop me if I'm going on too long here. But, you know, that Japan in the last decade has started classes teaching young men and young women to communicate 
to go on dates. They teach them how to go on dates because they're such a technological society. That they don't get a chance now. That's right. And mm. what's more, the more these young boys have access to porn, the less they are able to actually communicate with a real mm -hmm. woman and they start to develop fear and that for, for women's rights is, is devastating. So these young, young boys are learning how to date. And I think, you know, people say, isn't that a messed up society? I think, I think that's wonderful. beautiful. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And I think it's really funny because everything goes full cycle. Yeah. Whether it's the property market, tech market, whatever it is, life's going full cycle now. Mm. We're getting back to the old birds and bees, mm. having to teach them again. Mm. Whereas we went way so far away from that, coming back to reality. Like, as I say, opening the car door, holding my wife's hand when we walk down the street. You don't see it anymore. Right. It's like kids need to learn that. Yeah. Like, my kids don't find it weird because we do it. Yeah, yeah. And that sort of thing. But people that don't actually see physical other humans, <laughs> very hard thing to do. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? It is very interesting. I'm just having – I'm going into a, the kinesthetic experience of remembering how I feel when I when I hold my wife's hand because like like you know we can be arguing you feel and still hold the hold hand yeah yeah totally in fact you know to to because of my dyslexia and the ungroundedness that it can create I do actually have to hold another human being mm -hmm. um, so that I I get grounded like I'm talking to you you're actually in front of me right so I'm not moving in stillness and still in moving but of course these days in a university setting don't touch anybody <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's true, but but I think that that's really sad too. Yeah, because you're talking about technology that has stopped uh, human to human communication. Indeed. Now we're talking about systemic um, uh, rules for how we must communicate professionally. That means I can't reach forward and and touch you. Yeah, yeah. I'm a, an extremely tactile person, and I'm not saying if I grab your arm now, Brett, it doesn't mean I I am I want to whisk you away and oh, into a hotel room. Mate, I'm a hugger. Now you might be dis disappointed. I'm very that. disappointed, <laughs> but that's okay. Let's not go. But I'm a hugger, right? right? Yeah. And the thing is, these days, I'm, I'm my kids and my wife say, like, you can't just hug everyone. Why mm. not? Mm. It's only a hug, mm. not like a dry humping someone around. Absolutely, but there are people that exploit it. Enough, a Indeed. small percent of the population exploit it. Women do feel uncomfortable they in the do. work situation, and uh, and yet I think it's a tragedy. I think it's a human tragedy, just as in the same way that you know I love dogs. I love cats. I hate cats. I drew, I grew up with cats. I tell you, my <laughs> mum, gentlest person in the human yeah. in the universe. Always had cats. I learned affection from having cats. Yeah, that's fair. And that's why I'm tactile because I had a cat, right? <laughs> you know, this a horrid boy is like this guy over here. If I didn't, if I didn't hug you, he was yeah. gonna scratch me. Yeah, you know, remember that? Remember that Warner Brothers cartoon when when um, the little kid goes, and picks up the cat and strokes its fur backwards and <laughs> pulls all the fur off. Do you remember that? Yeah, image? I do remember. That. Love that image. Um, and yet. Uh, uh, so in the workplace, there's reasons why those uh, rules exist, but it has become sick. Has. And and as I love dogs, I also love children. I have a, a, a child and we've entered in this age of sheer sickness that any man hanging around a playground must axiomatically be a pedophile. Yeah. 
Now, I am not sitting here justifying pedophilia. No, what I'm, I'm saying is, what, what I'm saying is, what those kids are missing out on is the sense that there are there are decent human beings. That there were always dangerous people, right? But they've lost the sense of safety. They have because lost because everyone's their sense. bad. Not yeah. a, as opposed to those three people out of a thousand that mm, are actually mm, fucked mm, up. Mm, mm. Everyone's bad. Mm. And I think that's really sad too. Yeah, and, and, and what's more, coming back to film and technology, there was an experiment done in the 1970s uh, where they gave Super 8 cameras to kids and go, go film what you do. Just like we want to know through the kids' point of view what mm-hmm. they do. And the films all came back and, of course, those days they had to chemically process them. Yeah. And there were pictures of rivers and parks and kids playing ball games and they did that again in the early 2000s and the when the uh, and with digital cameras you know before we had decent iPhones yeah. and the pictures that came back were backseat of the car in the locked up in the backyard inside the playroom wow. right so our, uh, the test was saying this is children's reality yeah now, you know, like my mentor grew up in the bomb shelters in, in Britain um, in the Second World War, in Stroud. Mm. Um, and his mum never saw him beto- for, for te- 12 hours a day. He was out with his brother and sister just adventuring around. Mm-hmm. Um, these days, no kid's going to do that. That, my friend, is why I love living in Singapore with a 10-year-old daughter. Safety. Safety. As in, yeah, yeah, that is one thing that country gets right. 100%. Mm. 100%. Okay, so you're a professor, an actor, a director, a blah, 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 all these different things. <laughs> what are you? What's, what's the one? What if, are you, mate? If you, if you could pick one to do, what is it? Is I'm it acting or is it directing or I'm is a, it writing? I'm a director. You're a director. I knew it at, I, I didn't you choose acting old? until I was, I knew it at eight. I didn't choose acting until I was seventeen. I was good. At, I, I was like, I wasn't good at it. I was a, I was a clown. I was the class clown yep. because I couldn't read properly. And so, you know, what are you going to do? Mark up. Make and, people laugh. Yeah, I was the exactly same. right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's still working. Look, you made a career. Still going, right? yeah. You're a millionaire, man. Multi-millionaire. You're a millionaire, or a billionaire. A Brazil. Bazillion you're a bazillionaire, bazillionaire right? I want to talk to you about this film project. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so I'm a director. A, so why and why did you become an actor? Just because you were the class clown, someone said, "Hey, you should do that." Uh, pretty much. And a year into my arts degree in literature, I went, "What am I doing? Existential crisis. Like, what is the meaning and purpose of my, of my life?" And you know what? That guy over there. His mother... He's pointing to Tommy. Yeah, pointing to Tommy Gallant. <laughs> Tommy Gallant, and you can tune to him on radio. <laughs> um, he, his mother, uh, because we were very close uh, as, uh, as kids, mm-hmm. uh, we used to visit and stay at each other's yeah. places, and she just saw her perfect son with this kind of pimply <laughs> sidekick, right, <laughs> who wasn't very good at anything and, and just a, a, a weird and shy and messed up, obviously messed up. And she took me to lunch one day and she sat me down and she said, you can be whatever you want to be. And I went, uh, I, I, I have thanked her for that. I thanked yeah. her recently. But that woman gave me a start in life to thinking about how I could do and what I could do to she make sure. She gave permission. She not only gave me permission, she gave me confidence in myself. I love that. And then she went out and bought this book, 
who by, by uh, a man who became a friend of mine, John Harrison's Love Your Disease, It's Keeping You Healthy. Mm-hmm. An amazing book. It was the first of many, many um, self-help books yeah. that I got um, to get me past, you know, whenever there's a block, okay, I need to learn something about myself. That was the very first book. She bought it for me. She, she took me to lunch. Um, and from that day on, I started asking, well, what do I really want to do? And it was really hard to come out of a conservative Christian family where dad said, you're going to be, be a, a lawyer. lawyer. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, I would have been a hopeless lawyer. Right. For a start, I can't read. You would have been right? a theatrical <laughs> lawyer. I could see uh, yeah, you in, yeah. the, in the courtroom sort of, uh, I object. Yes. And your arms exactly. and things going everywhere and being very theatrical. Yes. I, yes. Which works. Yeah, maybe works so. Works on a few good men. Maybe so, but you also got to be smart. <laughs> Tom Cruise did on a few good men. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. You can't handle the truth. <laughs> exactly. Great, baby. Um, okay, so during directing, acting, all that sort of stuff, it's quite funny because a lot of people don't know directors. Right. But yes, true. a lot of people know actors. Yes. The way your brain works, are you sitting there, but if I direct and I'm behind the camera, no one will know who I am? No, I don't give a shit. In fact, that's great. Anonymity is the perfect place to be if you want to do real art. Now, I am not your average Australian film director. Yep. All of the rhetoric I got about you have to know your audience, well, yes, that is important. Um, you you have to know what the genre is. Yes, that is important. If you're going to do a horror film, you better know what goes into a horror film. Mm-hmm. All of that is important. But at the end of the day, and thank God for the mentor I had, happy to talk about him, mm. he's a writer with two Miles Franklin Awards and a, and a Man Booker Prize, yeah. um, Rodney Hall. He taught me... To stop being a craftsman and be an artist. Now, for me, um, right. So that's why I write and publish novels. Yeah. But he, he, I applied his rules as a writer to filmmaking. Now we think of the screenwriter as the writer of a film, but there is this theory uh, uh, as early as the nineteen sixties that was called auteurism. And that is that who is really writing the film is the director. Now, that theory has been shot to pieces ever since then. But the idea is you're, if you're a writer, you've got pen on paper. Yes. These days, fingers on keyboards. But the director's tool is the set, the actors, the lighting, the camera operator, uh, the, the cinematographer. He, that director, he or she, is making something extraordinary out of all these different components. And part of it is the actor. Now, had I not done acting, I would not have known how to direct actors. Had I not... And the only reason why I'm today a professor of screenwriting is because I knew the weakest part of my directing was writing. And I applied myself, I need to know what a writer is. I had a good good friend from school, Stephen Mitchell. Uh, he won awards for writing um, TV series that I directed. Um, and I won awards for the directing, thank God. Otherwise, he would have <laughs> held that over me, right? And he, um, uh, it, it, I realized he was bloody good at what he was doing as a writer. And I the needed to learn that. The difference, though, yeah. is he's writing it. Yes. Your storytelling. Precisely. But there isn't a good director in existence that doesn't have to know the structure of story. You're a storyteller, right? Mm-hmm. And you're a disruptor. Yep. Um, how do you know what you do? When you tell a story, how do you know it's a good story? It just pops in my head. Right. Okay. Good. Because you're natural at it. And, that, and that, that's the thing. Like, if I go on stage and I'm prepared, same mm. as these. If I'm mm-hmm. prepared for a podcast, mm. the worst podcast I can do. If I sit there and have to read out something, yeah, hopeless. Totally. Whereas if I just wing it, 
That's great. Absolutely. And that's that, the biggest difference. And that, that, by the way, is a huge lesson in filmmaking too because if we are seeing the homework, if we're seeing the rehearsal on screen, we're not seeing a film. Yes. We're not being subsumed in the reality that the director is kind of create. So that present tense reality, as uh, Naramore 1988 said, um, can't stop being an academic <laughs> sometimes, um, <laughs> um, that... The, the illusion of present tense is what makes us believe that what we're watching is somehow real. Now, I'm not a realist in any way yeah, yeah. as a filmmaker, but I tell you, what you know naturally, I had to learn. And um, that means that I am envious of someone like you, but I want to know more about it. So I learned so much about screenwriting that I get the job as, you know, apart from the academic analysis, I'm doing screenwriting, I'm teaching screenwriting, and... Uh, that's a very different process to directing, but there isn't a director in existence that that can go and do what they do unless they understand story intimately. So I had to learn what I was bad at in order to be better at what I was good at. So I'm gonna I'm gonna mention three directors, and you uh, tell me whether they're genius, whether they're I'm gonna call what you've just done academic, yeah, yeah, because they've learnt it, yeah, okay. or whether they're just natural, Ready? genius, academic, natural, yeah. Right. Ron Howard. Oh, my God. We were talking about him this morning. He's around the corner at the moment. <laughs> learned. Learned 100% learned. Def- definitely. Because Tells he was a great on, story. Yeah, and he was on Happy Days. Yeah. And while the other actors were off camera just, just messing about, he was sitting by the director watching what he was doing. Indeed. And if you look at his films, he's very similar to Spielberg. Yep. And this, you can actually see the nuts and bolts of the film. You can see how he has constructed it. As an auteurist trader, I always find it fascinating that Ron Howard always brings in the strong woman. There is a strong, supportive wife to the hero. Now, feminists can shoot that in flames, but so that's what I think. That's learned filmmaker, yeah. Baz Luhrmann? I don't like his films. I can understand that. Mm. Is that because they're different? No. Is it because they I'm don't tell all a, up is for it different. they don't tell a story? No, I think because it's postmodern nonsense. Okay, wow, love that. Right. I'll, and, and you can go out and say, but he's real famous. Sure. Okay. Uh, so is uh, Charles Manson. Do we like what he does? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the thing about, I just watched Elvis and I thought it was his um, most uh, um, amazing, uh, it was his most amazing film. Yeah. Uh, I was dead into it and I hadn't been su- that sucked into a Baz Luhrmann narrative since I'd seen Moulin Rouge. Which was amazing. Yes, but what I found at the core of Elvis was a human story of an extraordinary man, an extraordinary boy that was messed up and, uh, and, and driven and he didn't go into the full perversion that was mm-hmm. and, the, and the degree of the drug taking that was Elvis. Yeah. But, um, you know, he had the family's complicity and he wouldn't want to lose that. What he did have was all of that pomp and circumstance, all of that flashy, showy, it's a Baz Luhrmann film, we know, because we're looking through a kaleidoscope at the beginning, uh, and the um, celebration celebratory, um, what what um, Tom Gunning used to call cinema of attractions. Yep. It's not the story, it's the fact that it moves that I makes agree. people uh, go like rabbits in the headlights, like, wow, I'm walking, looking at that. Made a lot of money in 1910's um, uh, tent theatre uh, from cinema of attractions. So what he does is uh, he brilliantly dazzles the audience and when he has a really great core story, 
like he did with Elvis, like he did with Moulin Rouge, it works and it works beautifully. Apart from the fact that in Moulin Rouge he included a couple of David Bowie songs and <laughs> I'm solely, totally into and it. And Kylie as an you know, absent fairy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know David Bowie sung the, the um, opening song for it that was composed by he Bowie? Too. Uncredited. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. There was a boy. Great song. Yeah, terrific. And uh, next so, one. yes, next one. Tarantino. Yeah. <laughs> How long have we got? <laughs> Tarantino. Genius. I think genius. And um, the fact that I don't like his films doesn't mean I don't really admire the craft with which he does that. And the one thing Tarantino can do that is an extraordinary skill and even acknowledged auteuristic great directors like Bertolucci, Bernardo Bertolucci or um, Orson Welles can't do what he did. He has pluralism in his in every single mm-hmm. shot. You can see uh, Lucy Liu cut the head off of, you know, and do the the oriental fetishist thing of shuffling along the table and cut his head off with a scimitar and you laugh like hell and you also feel the horror at the same time right so it's not like yeah and people say oh you think you think violence is fun no and he's he's had to answer that question so many times right especially on Oprah Winfrey right and um and what I admire is that he can actually balance those two in every single shot in the whole film. We watch um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and by the end of the film, we're watching and enjoying us, uh, Brad Pitt, slaughtering the Manson family, because isn't that what we all want to do? <laughs> and we're laughing like hell. And I find that disturbing humour, but I admire that guy for that. Don't like his films generally, but I admire him. Last one, Guy Ritchie. Guy Ritchie. I wouldn't, you know, I would go outside your categories okay, and well. say this is a deeply talented man who had something to say mm. and because he thought outside the box, he invented a genre that didn't exist before yep. him and that's the crimedy, mm-hmm. right? So we had comedy and we had crime, but he brought it together in Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, which is brilliant. Mm. There isn't a Guy Ritchie film I haven't seen that I didn't love. Um, I think he's tongue-in-cheek, like when he's married to Madonna and, and the <laughs> character goes, like, oh, I love this song, and, and they're playing Like a Virgin. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, so him as a director is... Uh, an intuitive director. Mm-hmm. And I think he, like Tarantino, has grown up late enough to have been inundated with the visual image for his whole life. Yep. So he's very visually literate. But Guy Ritchie is the answer to Baz Luhrmann, I would say. Baz is visually literate, all right. You bet he is. But Guy Ritchie had this kind of tough... He was like an actor. When he, when you see him, the performances he's brought out of the actor, it's like he has acted himself into that film. Um, and whether that's uh, Brad Pitt or whether that's um, uh, Benicio Del Toro or, um, or who am I thinking of? All of those amazing actors that, that he has worked with. So you use the word for Tarantino, which I would use for Richie, genius. Right. right. You think Richie's a genius? 100%. So tell me why, why in your... Mind, Richie's a genius. Because I, I agree with that he invented the genre, but the fact is that you can you can tell twenty different story a story twenty different ways. Mm-hmm. He does it 
once and you can read it 20 different ways. Yeah, right. Okay. So you can watch a show and if you watch Lockstock, great, great example, yes, yeah. if you're watching one of the actors, he tells one story, one of the other actors during the same thing tells another story. Yeah. And by that, he does it so cleverly that you don't even know that's happening. Yeah. Okay, so I, I pay you that. And okay, you might have convinced me is like somewhere <laughs> between intuitive and genius. Yeah, yeah. But of course, you know, no film is ever made in a vacuum. Of course not. And there are two films when you say these are things you admire. Yeah. The first is Rashomon. You know, uh, Kurosawa's um, 1950s films with uh, Toshiro, um, I forget his last name. Um, they, that was the first time a camera had been pointed at the sun mm-hmm. and it is three different versions of the same story from the girl and yep. the, the man, the prisoner and the guard. And you look at this whole thing in a prismatic idea of one story plays out, then the other and then the other. And you realise one story, three different perspectives. But that's watching different. three different stories as one. He does yes. three, uh, sorry, other way around. That's watching one story three different ways. Mm-hmm. He does three different stories in one. I'll give you that. <laughs> I will definitely give you that. Yep. But at the same time, I would say we could cite a number of precedents to what of he's course. doing. And he's and learned one of that. them is Rashomon. And he's learned Yes, because he's smart. 100%. Yeah. I mean, no director should go... You, sometimes I get students who go, like, I don't want to watch films, I just want to make them. It's like, well, you know... If you don't watch start, them, you don't learn. Yeah, absolutely. It might be, okay, so maybe you're a genius, but probably you're not, right? <laughs> the whole idea of genius is questionable anyway. It was just an... I, idea that a single white man had this vision like Orson Welles and mm-hmm. he would he would do that. Orson Welles being another precedent I think to to uh, I mean Citizen Kane is a precedent to Guy Ritchie's of course. films. Um and they're all the same story just told different. They've all got the that same That I would disagree with you. Okay. I I don't think they're the same stories, but they are borrowed cinematic techniques. Good point. Yep. That Guy Ritchie developed at an early stage of digital processing Mm -hmm. because instead of doing normal speed action followed by slow motion, he could suddenly slow the punch down. He could see the flash go... (laughs) And the spit come out the mouth. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I mean, when when, um, Robert Downey Jr., Punches the guy and says, probably an alcoholic, <laughs> hits him in the liver, right? And you see that wobble. It's like, that's genius. Yeah. Like, like, okay, right, you've got me all the way. I, I'm I agree. Now. You're, I'm with a, me. you're on the genius, guy with your train, right, right. You've got to come teach my classes now. I'll run the podcast. I would love to. That'd be awesome. <laughs> okay, so we're going to finish up in a second. I could talk to you all day. Thank you. Most man. famous sure. person you've ever met that impressed you and the most famous person you've ever met that disappointed you. <laughs> I thought it was going to be controversial. Is this going to get liti- litigious? <laughs> no, I'm not at all. Anything he says, I didn't. So. Right, right. <laughs> I, I had the advantage professionally to work with um, uh, a number of amazing stars. Like I was cast in a Canadian television series in which I was a regular um, actor mm-hmm. and I was 35. And in the bunch of extras was this 17-year-old by the name of Christopher Helmsworth. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. Didn't have any lines, 
uh, put a crown on his head, did a couple of visual sequences, and he was gone from set. And everyone's going like, something about that guy. There's something about that guy. And I'm going like, well, what about me? Oh, 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 I'm good too. I'm an Aussie as well. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, but I didn't have that. I, I don't and will never have that sort of really gruff Aussie quality yeah. that he has, you know. Um, it's not the way I get cast. Mm-hmm. Um, I always get cast as working class, by the way. Okay. And I'm not... I, I am, you know, I'm not. middle class. <laughs> uh, th- not uh, not that I, to say that I didn't come from working yeah. class origins. What I'm saying is that the casting agents, when they say, oh, we need someone working class, let's get Ian. I'm like, I go in there and I say, you do know I'm a professor of film, don't you? Like, they, really? Uh, I don't know. You so, just act so, really well, that's what it is. So I got to work with Hugo Weaving. I got to work with... Um, um, uh, uh, Hugh Jackman. Now that's yep. the story I'm going to come back to in a minute. Yeah. You know, the disappointment. The disappointment. Story, right? yeah. Okay, but I would have to say the primary, most fantastic meeting I had was when I started to win awards in America, and I won an award at the San Francisco Film Festival. This is for Wee year. Boy. For Wee Jimmy, yeah. Wee Jimmy. Yeah. So yeah, no, well, done your research. Yeah. Um, and Not also, also <laughs> at that festival winning an award that year for long time lifetime achievement was clint eastwood right? wow now i exchanged one word with him i said hi and he because he's so tall he looked down on me in my pint size <laughs> and he said hi and then <laughs> i was like oh, can hell Clint Eastwood oh, said hello to me right? <laughs> and it's like it's like when he walks across stage to get his yep. uh, award it's like you can hear and you know the Ennio Morricone track just comes back that man was impressive and as a filmmaker you you ask him if a genius that is a genius and he's a genius on both sides of the camera and Um, cleverly when he's directing himself oh god yeah gonna be the hardest job ever I've just directed myself in the last film and I've had to do it a number of times before Mm. Um, bloody hard for reasons we don't have time to go into. Indeed. You could always invite me back. Oh, I'm more um, than happy to. Because I'm going to get you into my lectures in Singapore. You wanna, I'd love to. Because sometimes, sometimes they say, oh, you're a bit too Australian for us. <laughs> Wait till you meet this guy. <laughs> love so, that. the disappointing story. All right. Yep. <laughs> I, I'm going to tell it. Yeah, tell right. it. Come on. Um, I uh, used to do musicals. Mm-hmm. And as you know... Um, Hugh Jackman's really big uh, stage debut started with Beauty and the Beast. Yep. And he played, um, what's the name of the guest on? Mm-hmm. Right. And he was brilliant. I had just played the lead role in Greece, and when I came off stage, I looked at him and went, oh, God, I wish I had done it like that. We're sitting out the front of Beauty and the Beast in the um, Princess Theatre in Melbourne. I'm having a drink with Hugh Jackman. As you do like you do and my girlfriend at the time who <laughs> who had some pretty strong opinions about how I wasn't Hugh Jackman yeah right. cool. so uh just sitting down sitting down I, I I didn't drink at the time I'm drinking soda water and uh he's having a, a I I don't remember anyway we're having a nice chat and I just thought when people ask me is Hugh Jackman a nice guy absolutely he is a really decent human being good listener not egotistical Amazing, a model star, really, mm-hmm. and eventually playing these characters like Wolverine, right? Mm-hmm. Around the corner comes this drunken Aussie bloke, racist. He's lost his phone, 
and he's blaming the nearest Asian kids. He's going, you fucking, what you, took my phone, I want my fucking phone. And he's, he's thumping into these Asian kids. And I, I'm just not someone, I, I don't think, as Tommy points out, I don't yeah. think I do. And um, <laughs> I should never have been an academic. Um, <laughs> and so I, I got up o- off my chair and I, I charged right over to the guy and I took him by the shoulders and I go, mate, calm down. And he instantly roundhouse me he brings his house because he was drunk he was slow enough of that that fist and he was a powerful guy he's kind of built like you and he was swinging that fist through the air and because i've had a bit of kung fu and ninjutsu training i ducked his fist went across the top of my head and i got up behind him and i full nelsoned him and pulled him down into the gutter and i was in the back of his head going mate i was sort of like this is good training for my underbelly uh, character you know mate and calm down. <laughs> they didn't take it. Anyway, subtext is you're racist, whatever. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I, I was really like... And then his mates came around and I thought, like, oh, am I going to now? But his mates are going like, yeah, yeah, mate, thanks. Thanks, Dan. Now, calm down, Barry. Calm down. We'll get him home. Taxi. And um, so I managed to stop these kids being beaten up. Now, I'm shaking like hell and I walk back to the table and there's Wolverine that we've seen beat up countless <laughs> bad guys on screen, he hasn't even left his seat. Right? So I'm saying, when you watch when you watch Wolverine, just remember. He sat there watching yeah. you get beat. Now, which one of us is the cleverer guy? He is, 100%. obviously. He's the clever guy. <laughs> and it fits very much. And you could tell this wasn't a coward. He wasn't a coward. He was, was smart. He was very smart. And he, it was his life philosophy. And his life philosophy is very strong. Um, I'm very, very sad to see that he split with uh, Debbie Finesse. Yeah. Uh, I met her too and thought they were great people. But there you go. It's like Wolverine's not so <laughs> tough. <laughs> I thought that was going to be such a worse story. Right. Okay, right, the right. way we ought to wrap this up with some quick fire questions. Ready? Oh, cool, cool. Do, is this like I don't think, I just say. You just say. Right, What's okay. your greatest achievement in life? It's PhD. Personal people who influenced your career. Pers- like who's Pers- the number one? Dad. What about personally? Dad. <laughs> I knew him personally. Um, <laughs> so what about career-wise? Yeah. Who's the, like the biggest mentor? Oh, oh, Richard Jasek. Richard Jasek. Richard Jasek. Okay. Um, amazing director. Favourite food? Sushi. Favourite song? Mm-hmm. Time, David Bowie, 1974. Favourite movie? Favourite movie. <sighs> so you choose one. from, okay, only one, Lost Highway, David Lynch. Favorite place in the world? India. Really? Rajasthan. Hell What's yeah. next? The money you're about to give me for my next film. So I was going <laughs> to hit you up for the same thing. I know, I know, I know. There we go. So we'll, we'll do it both Just ways. That, didn't I? <laughs> um, the next thing actually is um, what we're going to talk on later. I've just been funded in Singapore for a, a big project on disability on film. I'm making a film with disabled people about disabled people. It'll be them uh, that I'll write the script with. It'll be them that we're, uh, I'm using their grievances as um, how they are socially blanked, uh, whatever comes up through that. And uh, it's a first in Singapore, and as far as I know, it's first in the world. I'm going to make the film out of that, and then I've already got a number of countries uh, together, and I'm really excited about it. Singapore has been wonderful in funding an Australian to make films from Singapore. 
So one of the amazing things is she's just arrived, so we have to go. Oh, very cool. As far as I'm concerned. Very cool. And you're an awesome human. Thanks so much for your time. Brett, to be interviewed by such an awesome <laughs> human. Right back at you. Appreciate Thank it. You, Thanks, brother. Thank you.